Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Michael Barlow, co-founder and CEO of Furnish, a premium furniture rental service that turns your space into a meaningful home you love. And in this episode, we talk about how Furnish got started, a conversation between Michael and his co-founder, Lucas Dickey, around starting this company to begin with, the customer development process early on for Furnish, the point at which Michael decided to quit his job and jump into Furnish full-time, Michael's experience around fundraising for Furnish, going through the Techstars Accelerator, partnerships, flywheels for Furnish, and what's kind of helped them grow over time, merchandising, which is such a huge part of Furnish and their business, and really so much more in this episode. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, We Are No Code. Their mission is to empower non-technical founders. The problem is that if you don't know how to code, building your MVP or app idea is a frustrating process. Developers are expensive. Looking for a perfect tech co-founder is time-consuming. And learning how to code can take three years or more. Their program is called the No Code Startup. And it's a no-code accelerator program that teaches founders how to build, launch, and monetize their startup without hiring expensive developers or waiting for a technical co-founder. No-code is a disruptive new way of building software products that allows users to drag and drop functionalities to build powerful solutions like Uber, Airbnb, Twitter, and much, much more. They have founders in over 12 countries and partnerships with organizations like UCLA Accelerator, Startup Boost, and Scale Health. If you want to learn more and find out if no-code is a good fit for your startup, visit them at wearenocode.com slash just go grind. Without further ado, here is Michael Barlow, co-founder and CEO of Furnish, which you can find at F-E-R-N-I-S-H.com. That's Furnish.com. Michael, welcome to the show. Hello, Justin. Very happy to be here. Yes. Thank you for taking the time. Heard a lot about Furnish the last couple of years. For people who aren't familiar, what are you doing at Furnish, Michael? Yes. And a lot of people aren't familiar, um, but more and more are, which is good. But uh, (laughs) Furnish is a premium furniture rental company. We, you know, the mission of our business is to make it effortless to create a home. A lot of uh, pain points we're solving and the genesis of the business. Happy to go into all the details over the course of the show here, Justin. Absolutely. And I do want to go to the beginning. How did this get started? Where did this idea come from? Yeah. So the idea came from really was looking at personal pain points in the life of myself, my co-founder and, you know, my now wife, actually. You know, so I had moved five times in seven years across four different sets of roommates in Jeez. New York and LA. And it turns out my experience wasn't actually atypical for, let's say, a young professional who, you know, had any sort of uncertainty around jobs, cities, neighborhoods, relationships, roommates. There's there's a sense of temporality, you know, for I'd say maybe a decade even after finishing college and quote unquote settling down. Um, And so I had gone through this whole rigmarole of buying, owning, moving, selling, storing furniture. Um, And then kind of a light went off in spring 2017 when my girlfriend at the time, now wife, this is a good story there, um, (laughs) was moving from Chicago to Los Angeles because we were, you know, she was in business school, we were doing long distance. Um, we had met in New York. I had moved to LA. She had gone to Chicago, was moving to LA. And we just had this conversation around, like, why isn't moving more exciting? Why is there so much stress and hassle associated with such a, 
like important and exciting part of your life. And it really came in, came down to the whole notion of like static assets and again, buying, owning, moving, selling, storing things like furniture and decor. And why isn't it, why doesn't your home change and evolve to fit your changing needs? Um, and, you know, that ultimately sparked an idea for a business model, which we pushed forward, you know, I had looped in a, a, a colleague of mine at the time. I was working at a startup in LA. Yeah. Media space. Um, and we started pushing for this business model until, until it took over our lives. And we, <laughs> and we left that startup to start this one. And with that too, like I always am curious about how co-founders come together. So how did you meet your co-founder? Yeah, my co-founder, Lucas Dickey, um, I call him the brains of the operation. He's a, he's a, he's a product and technical guy. Um, started his career at Amazon, and we had met at an LA startup that we were both really early in the doors at. It's called Atom Tickets, A-T-O-M. It's a, it's a ticketing technology company. We were backed by most of the folks in the media space in LA. We went through the Disney Accelerator um, and ended up being a you know really a, a, a movie ticketing competitor to Fandango. Um, we built a pretty great business there, you know, scaled the team from when, when Lucas and I were at it, 10 people to 70, um, over the course of three years. And we just developed a very good rapport over that time. And, you know, he was the first person I went to when ultimately this idea came to mind for what is now Furnish. And with that as well, with you giving this idea, you're, you're like, okay, Lucas, I want to start this company around this, want to have you join. What was that conversation like? Was he on board right away? Like, did it take a while to be like, okay, yeah, let's pursue Furnish? I'm curious about that. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Justin. So I uh, invited him to breakfast. And um, again, this is spring or uh, yeah, late spring 2017. And he just thought I was, he thought I was going to go over a couple like life updates or otherwise. And I essentially <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, because it was outside the office, um, pitched him on a business model and uh, said, let's let's seriously start exploring this. We'd love to have you at least in the weeds. You know, we have a lot of validation to do before ultimately getting, you know, leaving our jobs and starting this company. Um, and he really liked the idea. I mean, it really resonated with him. And honestly, you know, the business and the pain points we're solving resonate with a vast majority of people in our age demographic that we talk to. Um, so getting him on board was you know, with the actual concept wasn't too difficult. Um, ultimately, when it came time to leave our jobs in the fall of 2017 to push this thing full full time forward, um, it was more of a it was more like, are we going to take this jump? <laughs> are we going to go from great salaries, you know, and great success and equity ownership in a in a, in a quickly growing startup um, and leave all that on the table to take uh you know, to, to make like 50 K a year for a while, <laughs> you know, but a lot of, you know, everyone gets to that point. Um, and you've talked to a lot of great people on the show. Um, and you get to that point and it's sort of a, sort of a now or never, like if you're passionate enough and if you believe in the idea enough, I think that's, uh, that's what propels you there. Taking a little step back that you mentioned, you know, going through the validation side of it to see if this is going to be a business, obviously, before you even quit your job, what were some of those things you guys were doing early on to get validation to see, okay, is this going to be a business model that works? Are people going to pay for this? What were some of the things you were doing, Michael? Yeah, I, you know, I think you, you, people say it all the time, but customer development, you know, customer development is really where, you know, customers you know, aren't they really are your business at the end of the day. If you're an enterprise, it's, it's, you know, B2B sales or commercial sales. If you're in consumer, it's 
like do consumers want what we're <laughs> doing here? Um, and so what we did is we started with um, with 60 uh, either in-person or over the phone interviews, pretty in-depth. You know, we focused on a couple different buckets of things. It's pretty open-ended. You know, tell me about your experience with furniture. Tell me about your experience with moving. And from those two buckets themselves, we can really elucidate the pain points that people felt. Um, and I tell you what, we had some what we call anic data that developed, but it was you know some of the stories that we that we heard were were hilarious, inappropriate to share on a podcast. Uh, but I, but from there we developed like a good understanding of okay, these pain points are real. Let's go wider. And so what we then used is we used a, a, a platform called Mechanical Turk to do audience analysis, and you know we paid for survey data for um, a wider audience of people, probably about a thousand, um, asking some more more specific questions and then talking about the business model, which at the time we didn't have a name for. It was just you know rent the runway for furniture is really what came back um, on a lot of things, but furniture as a service. And a lot of the, you know, across the board, the feedback on the consumer side was incredibly positive. That was step one. Um, Step two for us was validating, you know, the business model. And then step three is the supply chain and the logistics side. But, uh, you know, happy to to dive in. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's a lot of fun. There's a lot of questions around that. And with that as well, then, so obviously this kind of customer discovery, customer development phase, I mean, that's a, a lot of times entrepreneurs kind of gloss over that. But if you look at experienced entrepreneurs, like they've all gone through this and uh, varying levels in terms of what that looks like. For you guys, though, going through that that process, you obviously have multiple facets of this to kind of confirm this is going to be a good idea. But going to the point of quitting your job or not, at what point were you at when you were like, yeah, we're, quit our, we're going to quit our jobs and jump in full time? Yeah, it was around it was around five, almost six months of work. And I say work, it's you know, it's not like five hours a week. It's more like twenty-five or thirty. <laughs> it's like you're it's like you're, you know, I was fortunate to be a college athlete, but it was it was like I was back in college and you had your job, which was schoolwork, and then you had this other thing on the side, which was twenty-five or thirty hours that you were actually more excited about. <laughs> um, and so that's the analogy I like to draw here. Um we became more excited about this opportunity than our than our own jobs. And at that point, that was, again, it was a great inflection across, um, especially as we got more and more validation. Now, after the consumer side, you had to validate, like, logistically, can you do this? What are the unit economics of this business to start? What are the unit economics at scale? Um, and then ultimately, do we have a line of sight into being able to raise capital? Um, to go support ourselves for a little while and to and to build you know an MVP of this and uh, and start getting revenue and so we didn't have any revenue when we started but we had you know a, some really good validation and gr- good initial conversations with potential capital providers mostly in the LA community um, and so we you know but they're not going to back you unless you take the leap right and so I think we yeah. had due diligence we were in a, the right place. Uh, maybe more so than other entrepreneurs I've talked to before they've quit their jobs. We had pretty good, we had pretty good confidence at that point. Yeah, and at that point too. I mean, you had been at a startup and been pretty successful with it. I and mean, even though you weren't the founder necessarily, you were still 
at a startup that had done really well, which I'm sure helped, and then having that validation in some capacities of talking to customers and getting a, a lot of that. Take me through then how that fundraising went like to get the first kind of initial funding for Furnish. Obviously, you, you've raised a lot since and we can get into that, but I'm curious when in early days when you're first getting funding, how did that go for you guys? Yeah, I, you know, it was, um, it's just the fun, the funding cycle evolves so much as you, as the expectations rise, in the business, <laughs> right? But taking yourself yeah. back three years now, um, it was very much a, okay, do you, you know, pre-seed investor, you know, you have five slides, two, like two, two founders, do they really believe you're going to be able to pull something like this off? And do they believe in the absolute market size and the path to even make a dent in this market? And I think it all came down to, you know, let's say Lucas and Michael in the early days. Like, do we believe that they have the right skill sets to push this business forward and recruit a team that can actually build this business in a meaningful way? So, you know, all the conversations early and I had some, you know, some friends who I had met in my early career who had become, you know, hedge fund guys. And they said, uh, well, I wouldn't back you, Michael, but I back Lucas, you know, and then other <laughs> folks and, you know, and, and, and maybe, maybe that's just lip service, but we had other folks, yeah. you know, my co-founders network is like, oh, like, you know, Lucas, you need a partner here, but Michael's the right partner. And so trying to do this on either of our own, I think would be a big challenge, especially, you know, the entrepreneurial journey as a solo founder is, I think, quite challenging based on what I've heard um, from a lot of other folks. But when you have kind of a partner in the trenches with you out of the gates, it's, it's one, it's just helpful um, emotionally, but two, it's, also, it's, it's helpful on the capital raising trail out of the gates for sure. And once you have that, then you make your first hires, you really start pushing into MVP, uh, re- revenue generation. A lot of it's manual, um, but... I mean, yeah, I'm trying to take myself back here three years. It's a walk down memory lane. (laughs) Yeah, I just wanted to say one thing around that. It is definitely difficult as a a solo founder and one person who's done it really well, but because she's had experience with other companies is Madeline Frazier from Gemist. Because we talked about in the interview I did with her about she had been at other companies, she'd founded other companies and been really successful with it with co-founders. But when she started Gemist, she started by herself, but she already had that experience. And so obviously it's not impossible to do by yourself, but clearly having a co-founder is one desired by many VCs and two helps you share the burden of, of running a company, which is a lot to, to handle. And, and take me through then. So you have this idea, you launch it, you quit your jobs. What, how does it go in terms of acquiring customers, kind of getting the first people to actually be, you know, paying for the, the service you were providing and what did it look like back then? Yeah. I mean, this is uh, there's some good stories here, but we, uh, we essentially operated off of, um, and I, and I want to send us around to some of our first, what we'll call like 30 beta customers, right? Who are all in the yeah. community. Although since a lot of folks have, have kind of migrated out because it's been a number of years now. But um, we operated all off PDFs and we put together Google form surveys, sent it to like three degrees removed of our network. Like who do you know who's in need of furniture in the process or in the process of moving? And, you know, we sent it out to a couple hundred people, had them send it out. We ultimately ended up with, say, a list of 60 or 70 people who were, let's say, ripe for us to pitch. So we, we had <laughs> forms that, you know, said anything around, like, tell them about your space, upload a floor plan, um, tell us about you know, your current furniture style. What do you like? What's your dream place look like? Show us your Pinterest boards. Um, and so we came up with kind of a, I'd say a design profile for each one of these 
folks. And it was all, again, incredibly manual. Then what we did is we said, we put together a, uh, a, a catalog of furniture that we said we had. Now, when we say we have furniture, we obviously, we didn't have logistics or a warehouse. Like we had, you know, a friend with a truck and we were doing kind of manual things. <laughs> um, at one point we had bought a bunch of furniture. You know, I had, at the time I was living in a small apartment in Venice with a garage. So we bought a bunch of furniture, put it in, you know, my garage, bought a bunch of furniture, put it in Lucas's guest room in him and his wife's house. Um, and we said we had all this furniture and, you know, the furniture that we didn't have, we could get within seven days from Wayfair or CB2. It was locally stocked. And we had validated that just online. Um, and we put together these kind of custom rooms across you know, a couple different price points. If people indicated they want living room furniture, we put together like six options for sofas. Then we put together 25 options for sofas for someone else and said, hey, we asked ourselves, like, are people more likely to use us if we offer six or 25? <laughs> there's a sweet spot in the minimum, but there's a real issue with the paradox of choice, especially with our core demographic. And so that's a learning. Um, you know, we had a lot of early learnings really early on around, you know, through this manual beta pro- program. Um, and it, but, you know, I'd say the highlight of it was, was driving around in rented trucks and delivering furniture that we uh, were storing in our respective home um, to friends or friends of friends and building it and assembling it in the home and figuring it out together. Like, what is this? What does this look like? How do we ultimately scale this thing? Um, but those first 30 customers were really, really in the weeds and really manual. One of the things I want to go to as well, I know going from that spot there, so the early customers and kind of the, the first initial people who were using this and getting some feedback there, eventually you obviously get more and more people to use it and you raise a $30 million big seed round from RET Ventures. How did that then change the company in terms of how you guys operated? Yeah, I think you know at that point, we, you know, we went through Techstars LA, a program with Anna Barber, who I know you know. Um, and we learned a lot more about how to scale the business. We hired a couple very smart folks in the logistics world. Um, and then we, we had, a, I'd say we had a really good line of sight into not just the LA market, but also the Seattle market. We made a smart operations hire up in Seattle and said, let's go launch kind of two markets. We have a really good idea around um, the, the kind of, all the costs associated with customer acquisition and delivery assembly, et cetera. Uh, we also had financing set up, a scalable financing solution. So we're not using equity capital to buy the furniture itself, only for just the general OPEX of the business. Um, and so we had a pretty good, I'd say, pitch. Um, RET Ventures is an exciting investor for us for so many reasons, and they've been great the past few years um, in helping with our business, but they were, they were incredibly excited about what we were doing and its application to their LP group. Um, and we got a deal done pretty quickly with them and then a group of others, um, on top of that. And again, Techstars invested and some of our pre-seed angels invested as well, um, to make that round come together out of the gates, which, you know, it's a big round, it's a mix of debt and equity in there, but, um, it's definitely, it's definitely a big early round, but then, you know, as I alluded to at the beginning of the conversation, Justin, um, you know, there are expectations, goals, yeah. goals become, you know, very real. And I think that's exciting for a business, but you know, when you go from five to 15 to 30 to now 60 people, um, it's just, uh, you know, it's definitely the business becomes more and more buttoned up. Um, 
and budgeting becomes more and more real. It's it's the right level of maturity that you have to drive throughout the organization. Um, but it's definitely it's definitely just a it's it's a fascinating process to be on. I'd say. Yeah, and going through that, I mean, obviously, you mentioned growing to sixty people plus. You know, that process of hiring and building a team out on the team side of it. How have you approached that finding people, and how has it gone? You know, being in based in Los Angeles. You know, I think it's it's funny. Based in Los Angeles in 2019 is very different than based in Los Angeles. <laughs> Does the whole work from home? You really, you know, we have people on the East Coast. We have people in San Francisco, Seattle, Boston. Um, our a core of our group is is still in LA, um, but we've really expanded our our horizons. But I'd say, generally, from a recruiting perspective, Justin, um, we've been able to build a very strong team on the backs of our business resonating with folks in a meaningful way. Again, if yeah. you're someone who's early 30s and you talk about the actual business model that your um, that that furnish is. There's so much resonance there. It's like, oh, I wish this was around when I was 26 and living in <laughs> Chicago before I moved to LA, right? And there's, uh, I think that for us, we've built a team of people who actually passionately believe in the problem we're trying to dissolve and the value that we're delivering to consumers. So I think that's been a big tailwind for us in hiring. And then obviously the more, you know, if you have high profile investors, which we're very fortunate to have, um, that elevates the level of talent you're able to attract at the company as well. And so that's been, that's been great. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're a very long LA company, very proud to be based here in town. Um, and so focusing on hiring local talent, there is a lot of local talent. I think we've, um, you know, we've grown as LA has grown. Um, and the tech talent that's moved down here has been, has been tremendous. And I think just that migration from places like New York and, and San Francisco right now to Los Angeles is see. <laughs> yeah, and there's obviously a lot of companies that have done well, even more recently, looking at Snap, looking at Honey, a number of others that are good RX. And yeah, there's a lot of companies in LA. It's very exciting for people who are here and like building companies in this city. Uh, it is fun and exciting. And, and one thing I want to go back to as well, I know there's kind of been a number of these over the time, but how have kind of these partnerships played a role in Furnish? I know there's Crate and Barrel, uh, you went through like Ikea Accelerator. How have those played a role in, in your company and your growth? Yeah, I think, um, I think partnerships are incredibly important for really any company. I think for, you know, for us, the two you mentioned are supply chain partnerships. You know, Crate and Barrel early on has been a pretty lean-in partner in terms of, you know, supply chain and understanding consumers. I think our value proposition to working with them is, we introduce your brand. We can offer your brand on a rental basis. And we introduce you to customers who are sub 30 years old who otherwise wouldn't necessarily go to a crate and barrel or go to a CB2 store um, and, 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 and purchase your goods. Um, so this is another kind of an earlier bite at the apple in terms of brand exposure. And we've continued to deepen that partnership um, with kind of more news coming soon there. Uh, we were also fortunate to do the accelerator program through IKEA Corporate out in Sweden last year, um, and I think there's you know we are a lot of ongoing dialogue on that front. Um, but IKEA is definitely an innovative brand, um, a global brand, the biggest furniture retailer in the world, and you know they have interesting things on the horizon too. And we're we're again more more to come there too. But <laughs> partnerships generally, I. Uh, I think there's partnerships on the supply side or partnerships on the demand side. 
you know, in any marketplace model, and we're not really a pure marketplace, um, I think that's a way to scale your business. It's a way to scale your business effectively. So it's not just hand-to-hand combat, one-off here, one-off there on both sides, um, because that, again, is an unscalable model, and you really try to leverage um, flywheels wherever you can. Yeah, and going from you know maybe incremental growth to really taking big leaps through that as well in terms of these partnerships, and that's what they can give you. And I've thought about that a lot with even this podcast and thinking of partnerships that give you way more than kind of your day to day growth. You know, something that can jump you know ten x, hundred x, et cetera through the right partnership. That's a win win, and it really makes sense for both parties. And one of the things just to go back to quickly, I know you mentioned going through TechStars LA Accelerator and a barber. How did you decide on on going through that? Did you ever consider other accelerators? Uh, I'm curious about that too. Yeah, I you know it's a it's a question that we've been pretty introspective or yeah retrospective uh, about. I think we were very excited about the opportunity to you know go through an LA oriented accelerator at the time. I think where we were as a business is we we're five people trying to figure a lot out at once. And so what we got through that accelerator, I'd say is, is largely focus. Um, and we spent a lot of time with the tech stars team over the course of summer 2018. Obviously we did a great round after that. Um, and I think they really honed in a lot of aspects of, of our focus. And, you know, I think one thing we learned through that is, you know, you, as a startup, you really can't try to boil the ocean there are opportunities everywhere and you see more and more and more of them. Um, but honestly, whether you're a team of five or you're a team of 50, you're not going to be able to go tackle all those opportunities. <laughs> so I think focus is one is one thing we really took out of that process. And it's something we went into that process uh, wanting and needing more of. Um, I'd say one thing about Techstars generally is we've maintained a very active relationship with them. They've helped with everything from recruiting executives at the business to recruiting, you know, helping recruit board members for us at the business. Um, you know, it's a it's a network of people who are incredibly successful and generous with their time uh, when it comes to entrepreneurs and building and just building an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and so over time that, you know, that decision has continued to pay dividends for us at Ferna. One of the things too, that you had discussed earlier, just touch on Seattle and Los Angeles as two of these markets. Take me through today, how you view expanding into new markets, what you're looking for, some of the things that go into those decisions to expand furniture into different markets. Yeah, Justin, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated question. I think also this year has been a little bit of a pause for us. I think if you would have asked me at the beginning of the year, where would we be in Q4 (laughs) in terms of new markets, I would have said, you know, these four places, these five places, um, you know, we've really doubled down and invested in some other aspects of the business this year, which is, I think the right decision for sure. Um, and sets us up for a really big kind of exciting year in 2021. Um, where the world may or may not look different, we shall. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, from a from a decision making process, it's a you know, you got to be very intentional. It's a very considered decision when you think about expanding markets that require local logistics support. Uh, we do require local logistics to at least some extent when you open up a new market, as you think about supply chain, last mile, reverse last mile, reverse supply chain generally. Um, you know, we have a fully in-house built solution that's ERP, IMS, WMS, so inventory and warehouse management. Um, and so you have to build and train people to what I call like direct warehouse labor who, you know, are full-time employees with benefits at Furnish 
um, but they're you know they're very much um, they're the they're the people that deliver deliver and assemble the furniture in customers' homes. So they're the ones that make the final impression of our brand because it's not just a pure digital experience that we offer. Now, it's a you know there's a lot of kind of calculations that go in and demographic data and customer research that go into launching new markets, and so we're you know, more to come on that front soon, but it is a, you know, you do have to make an upfront investment. Um, and so when that's required in any respect, you want to be as diligent as possible. Yeah. And on that note, and talking about COVID, I mean, how has that impacted you? Obviously you mentioned a little bit about it right there, but take me through, you know, when it first kind of hit and, you know, how that transition then has been for, for Furnish in terms of how you guys look at things. Yeah. I, you know, Justin, I'd say that we are, we're so fortunate as business to be in, I'd say the home furnishings or the home goods category. Um, and we kind of recognize that every single day as we need to grow the course this year. And so many you know, people I know are you know, in Lucas's network or your network, anything that you've seen, um, there's so many industries that are impacted negatively by this. And so we haven't really had to, I'd say, pivot our business, um, which has been great. I mean, you look at some furniture retailers and you look at actually furniture pure play e-com players like Wayfair. You know, gross off the charts. They're the only game in town. Uh, So being a pure play e-com player that I also think, you know, rental adds a level of flexibility to your life. And I think that's more important now than ever. Um, I think we're we're in a a good place at the right time. Um, And so we weren't impacted negatively by COVID. I'd say, you know, at least from a demand perspective, you know, there's other aspects of the business. Um, You know, we are a monthly payment for our customers. And if your customer, let's say, loses his job because they were working at Paramount, um, not, not to pick on Paramount at all, but I, most of the employers across the country have laid off some aspect of their workforce now, um, if not furloughed or just due to uncertainty generally in the economy. And you know those people are furnished customers. And so how do you work with um, those customers to help them through a tough time? And so that's obviously, you know, from a dollar and cents perspective, immediately not very helpful, but at the same time, you're building customer loyalty and then you're continuing to build that community and ultimately a referral flywheel and people will like, will get reemployed, you know, fingers crossed for many. And I, I, you know, I think working through some aspects of that have been challenging, but also something I'm glad we experience now, right? I'm glad we experience, experience that when we have you know thousands of consumers and not hundreds of thousands, because yeah. we haven't worked through what that process and what that software fix looks like now, it's just going to be more challenging as you get bigger and bigger. Yeah. And as you scale, I mean, there's just so many different things that change in terms of how your business operates, especially in a business like yours uh, with logistics as well, uh, compounding on that. It's not purely like a software company, for instance. And with that, with that as well, then I know you touched on flywheels a couple times here. What are some of those kind of flywheels you're thinking about or implementing at Furnish to help you know fuel the growth or fuel even efficiencies at the company? Yeah, I'd say there's again two sides, and you know on the supply chain side, we are you know we're a bulk buyer of furniture across our supply chain, and so with many businesses, as you achieve scale, you get better and better purchasing power, buying rates. I mean, for us, it's at scale in our supply chain, we're able to buy or to you know to buy or manufacture furniture at, at better margins for our business, which is which is very important for us. Um, and so that's kind of one flywheel that's continued to pick up over time, and we you know that acceleration has continued to improve the unit economics and the margins of our business, which is 
you know, critical to a business in 2020. Maybe in 2016, <laughs> when companies uh, in the co-working space were scaling, you know, margins weren't as important to investors. But I think generally we're trying to build a you know sustainable long-term business here. So that's kind of one aspect of a flywheel. Um, the other aspect of a flywheel, I think it's it's not as straightforward to crack the customer acquisition flywheel in a direct-to-consumer basis, um, or we haven't necessarily, there's an opportunity for us to, to get better there for sure. On the flywheel side, it's, you know, why do customers use your service? They use our service today because either they're in the aspect of moving into a new place or someone out, someone, one of their roommates is moving out of a place where they're currently living. Um, and so some aspect of mobility is the, um, is really the driver here. And so capturing demand at the right moment in time and then layering on a flywheel effect is, is definitely challenging. Um, I think with any consumer business, finding that acquisition flywheel, and we were just talking about you know, the newsletter Morning Brew prior to, you know, to, we were chatting about that earlier, right, Justin? But yeah, you know, they have an incredible referral mechanism that's propelled the growth of their business in a really meaningful way. Um, I think we're still trying to crack that on our end, but we're definitely getting closer and closer to some aspects of that. And it could be a referral mechanism. It can be positive reviews. Um, and how do you leverage those with digital advertising? How do you create the right content, static or video or display or right language or, you know, or let's say billboard campaigns that can go viral, something that we're, you know, <laughs> we have some, we think we have some good contenders here we're launching soon. So um, specifically in LA, which is a great billboard market. So yeah, uh, great spot to be for that. <laughs> And and one thing too, I know we've kind of alluded to, and we've, we've kind of touched on, but you mentioned earlier that it, the mix between products of offering five products versus twenty five products, and kind of this information overload or the too many options, like paradox of choice. How do you look at product selection today for Furnish? Because I imagine that's a very very big part of your business. Yeah, I mean merchandising for any um, you know whether you're in apparel or furniture or the like. I think merchandising is so critical. Um, I think I've always taken the, the, you know, the Netflix approach and I think, um, uh, it, it, it could have been Reed Hastings, but he said publicly that I want someone to log on to Netflix and I want to show them one option and I want that option to be the option they click on, like make it <laughs> easy for people in terms of, you know, what you call collaborative filtering or smart recommendations that it just becomes a no-brainer. Every single day you're going to Netflix and you're watching something new, it knows you so well, almost better than you know yourself. And so I don't think, you know, that's that's the dream. Netflix hasn't even <laughs> with, you know, 200 million subscribers. Um, you know, for us, I think we constantly look at volume. We look at you know, volume on specific item types, specific design types, whether it be uh, mid-century modern industrial or boho uh, kind of the, those are the three style categories we offer the most of on our site um, and we look at subscriber profiles you know are you are you a, a, a guy are you a female what do you ultimately navigate to as you tell us more about yourself how do you upsell someone in a way um, based on the product they just have in their cart what does that kind of cart abandon or email flow look like how do you customize that to each individual customer to maximize the opportunity to convert? Um, and, you know, I'm talking a lot about maybe acquisition strategies here, but tape yeah. acquisition strategies, um, collaborative acquisition strategies, 
ultimately room design recommendations is something we're getting into more and more right now with some beta tests. And we're seeing some great results, right? You log on, we show you the five items that go really well together. Um, you can mix and match maybe a couple of those, but then you pick four. Okay, now we have another data point that those four go really well together and convert with a customer of this profile. Um, and so as people create more and more profiles, we're able to customize the offerings to them, which ultimately maximizes conversion um, and you know, narrows the funnel and in some ways and widens it in others. So yeah, long answer to a short, <laughs> but uh, definitely a lot of considerations here. Well, I mean, clearly there's a lot that goes into that, obviously, in, th in terms of thinking about it, because there's a lot of ways you could go with it. And everything you're doing as a founder, you're trying to be strategic about it and and have a reason for why you're doing certain things. And and on that note, I want to know for you today, I and mean, this is three years into the business, obviously you've grown a number of employees, raised a, a bunch of capital. What do you kind of most focus on you personally uh, as CEO right now, Michael? Yeah, I, it's a it's a good question. Like today, I'm focused on you know doing a podcast with Justin and <laughs> grinding. Um, you know, I think the the people operations and personnel management side of um, your job, creating a culture that people want to work and stay at, as well as creating a a very tangible vision yeah. that everyone up and down the chain understands how what they're doing on a day to day basis contributes into. Um, and getting that consistency across an organization is something that, you know, as you have five or your organization goes five or six layers deep, becomes really critical. And it's honestly the CEO's job. You know, sure, there's investor relations and finance and, you know, marketing sides of things that I touch on a day to day basis. Um, but those are those become more and more intermittent. Like your job really becomes, let's say, culture or internal culture sales, um, unless you're capital raising, at which point your job is external sales to new investors um, or current investors. So that's what I'd say has the, been the biggest shift of focus for us after we've raised our Series A and continue to build a very strong team. Um, and I think we've taken a pretty academic approach to uh, leveling and layering the organization and titling um, so as not to build an organization that's either too top heavy or too... Um, or, or like the other way around. So you have the appropriate expectations set at every rung of the ladder. So you know, there's a lot of calculus that goes into that. Um, yeah. Again, having a great co-founder who has a lot of experience, especially on kind of the academic and psychology side um, to build the right organization to get the company from you know seed to A, ultimately to B and then beyond. Yeah. And, and one of the things like beyond on that note of the, the next kind of the future, uh, in terms of just kind of taking a step back to kind of more broadly, the, the sharing economy, what are your thoughts around that? Where do you think this is going? Uh, people renting more, more furniture, more other, other things. I just would love to hear more about what you kind of think about the future of kind of just like sharing economy of sorts. Yeah. I, you know, I kind of reframe your comment in, in a lens of the service economy. I'd say that you know, what we're trying to do is, is marry furniture and the service economy itself. And the service economy can be anything that maximizes customer convenience. And so whether that be, you know, DoorDash, whether that be scooters in terms of ride sharing, which may be a bad example during a pandemic, but last year we're a great example. Um, but anything that really uh, injects a maximum amount of convenience into customers' lives. And I think that has to touch every class, every asset class, every asset class, the, the consumer, 
um, experiences has to be has to have some level of service in it. And so if you take a step back and look at our category generally, furniture, um, you know there is no there is no aspect of of service that's uh, that's that's I'd say offered um, in a very forthright way. And so our general value proposition to consumers is, we assemble it, we deliver it, we arrange it for free, then we pick it up when you're done. You tell us how long you want the product for. We're here to progress and change with your life. Um, but we're very focused on you. We're very focused on making your experience at home both beautiful and effortless. And that I'd say resonates, like who does that not resonate with? <laughs> I just don't have a like, big enough microphone um, to tell people about with this. It's not, yeah. oh, you're going to buy cheap furniture. You know, it, you have to find a way to lug it out of a store with you. And then you have to, you know, build it yourself and spend four hours. And, oh, this doesn't disassemble, so it doesn't move. And if you do try to move it, it'll break. So you might as well, you know, not pay the money to move it, which is more than the money you paid for the product itself anyway. Um, you know, the, the whole experience in, in the world of furniture was broken in our estimation. Um, so I think our furniture as a service model has huge legs to grow and disrupt this industry, which is $400 billion industry globally, $120 billion industry just in the U.S. alone on an annual basis. And, you know, we're, we're proud to be a drop in the bucket. Um, <laughs> drop in the bucket um, can also can be a very meaningful business over time. Well, just a, a drop in the bucket that's growing, though, Michael, is the key thing <laughs> to be a, a larger drop in the bucket. Um, and with that... <laughs> And with it too, looking at kind of uh, Los Angeles itself, I mean, what are, your, what are your thoughts? I mean, we mentioned kind of long LA, but you've been in this ecosystem a number of years now. You've been building your company for the last three years or so. What have you seen as the kind of evolution of, of tech and startups in Los Angeles? You know, it, it's, it's definitely, I'd say, on it. It's been on an upward trend, um, but I think 2020 has been a really a really strong inflection point for us. Um, and not to say, you know, there's a huge, there's a benefit from a pandemic, so to speak. Um, but if you go back a hundred years to the Spanish flu, the biggest population, uh, area, the biggest metro area to, be to benefit from that pandemic was Los Angeles, um, yeah. with population migration. And I think we're seeing more and more of that today, um, as well in terms of folks from, you know, maybe my network specifically from San Francisco or New York who are moving down and moving to Southern California because what's not to love about Southern California, lower, <laughs> better weather, um, and better startup opportunities is now what we're trying to provide too. Um, but I think that migration pattern is happening in a really real, very real way. You look at organizations like what Spencer Raskoff's building at dot LA, um, kind of becoming that, let's say a tech or a small business startup hub, uh, for the country. I think you, you know, a year ago that didn't even exist. And so you yeah. see continued push by the ecosystem here um, and continue money to follow, you know, to follow the talent and follow the ideation that's, that's coming from Southern California. So um, big fan, obviously, of the trajectory that we're on. And, you know, maybe we accelerated that three to four years um, in 2020 with, uh, with the pandemic. Um, but I think that was ultimately bound to happen anyway. Yeah, I, I think it's it's been growing. We've seen that kind of over the last number of years, and I've been obviously paying a lot more attention since I moved here. Uh, two things that are happening: companies that are growing, and it's it's exciting. It's definitely interesting to see how this will evolve and continue to evolve. One thing I, I want to go back to though is. Uh, I know from looking at kind of your your history, you started in like investment banking, switched to the startup world, 
is this what you expected or thought you uh, would be doing a number of years later after switching from investment banking? Yeah, for being in the furniture business, my you know my, <laughs> my father's in uh, financial services, been in it for forty years, um, and you know we we just talked at Christmas time last year, and uh, he was like, "My God, I I I never expected you to." Uh, one to not follow my, but it's a generational thing. You work two years at a job, you leave. Your parents are like, "What? Why are you leaving? You're not going to get it." Um, but I think generally, the uh, you know the furniture business is not something that I would have ever seen myself in. That said, we're we're not necessarily in the furniture business. We're in the, the business of making people's lives better. Um, and I think there's opportunities, so many opportunities for that. You've had a number of folks on your show talking about that specifically. Um, and so if I I'd be, you know, five years ago looking at where I was and 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 saying, oh, you're one, you're going to be running a company that's going to be making lives more seamless for, let's say, solving problems for, that you're experiencing right now. I would be, I'd be, I'd be very excited about getting to that point in my career. So I'm not surprised there. I think, you know, how it's manifested in kind of a furniture category, I think, is a little uh, has been more of a wild card, but. Obviously, I think this, you know, starting this business was was the best decision I'd say I made personally and professionally um, in terms of uh, like m- m- many aspects, not to say it's been an easy road at all, <laughs> and I'm not expecting an easy road going forward at all, um, but it's just, you know, it's, it's very rewarding to uh, to build something from nothing. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the last questions I have, I'm always curious about this. Have there been any particular books, whether it be business or personal, that have been impactful for you? Yeah, I mean, I read a lot of business books. I think my, you know, my favorite book, what I tell people is is a book called Against the Gods by a guy named Paul Bernstein. It's really a book around the, it's like a mathematical history book, but that's maybe where my mind lends itself. <laughs> um, but it's on the, it's on the history of risk and it's on how humans have understood more and more probability of future events happening over time and have really 500 years ago took a leap and said, oh, the future is not predestined for me by God. I can actually have an impact and there's a probability on XYZ event happening based on math. Uh, (laughs) And I think the book generally is just so fascinating. It's a tour de force in terms of history. um, But I think I it's it's resonated with me in terms of being able to control your own destiny um, and how the decisions you make are, um, you know, there's there's a certain amount of free will associated, yes, but there you can be really calculated about the decisions you make and it's not up to like complete chance and God willing. Um, I don't know if it's a relevant book for folks on the <laughs> and it's a pretty dense one, um, but I do think that's that book has had a meaningful impact on me over life. And that is the the first time that's recommended for sure. <laughs> but I do love I love new ones. Yeah, I love hearing what people are listening, uh, reading, or listening to, even with uh, you know Audible or anything else like that. Because I think it's fascinating how that kind of shapes us as as people, and then also as entrepreneurs as well. And, and Michael, where can people go to learn more about Furnish and connect with you as well? Yeah, absolutely. You can find me LinkedIn. I'm Michael Barlow. Um, Furnish is you can find us at. Furnish.com, F-E-R-N-I-S-H. We're trying to respell Furnish. People spell the U, um, and there's some cool history to the to the name of the business too. But uh, maybe we'll get into that another time. Awesome, Michael. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. 
Awesome, Justin. Look forward to talking soon. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, We Are No Code. Their mission is to empower non-technical founders. The problem is that if you don't know how to code, building your MVP or app idea is a frustrating process. Developers are expensive. Looking for a perfect tech co-founder is time-consuming. And learning how to code can take three years or more. Their program is called the No Code Startup. And it's a no-code accelerator program that teaches founders how to build, launch, and monetize their startup without hiring expensive developers or waiting for a technical co-founder. No-code is a disruptive new way of building software products that allows users to drag and drop functionalities to build powerful solutions like Uber, Airbnb, Twitter, and much, much more. They have founders in over 12 countries and partnerships with organizations like UCLA Accelerator, Startup Boost, and Scale Health. If you want to learn more and find out if no-code is a good fit for your startup, visit them at wearenocode.com slash just go grind.